morning, Bethel Church. Uh, if you would take out your bulletins, I have a couple announcements for you. Uh, first of all, uh, if you would take out this uh, yellow form here in your bulletin, and there's uh, also a statement in there about Christian Thought Form, I want to let you know that that is actually coming up. We're just about a month away from that. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, Christian Thought Form is our annual apologetics conference. And this is actually our ninth one, which is amazing. So we're already making plans for our 10th next year and have one of our speakers reserved for next year. But um, uh, this year we've got two great speakers for you guys, Corey Miller and uh, Peter Kupich. And you can see the topics there uh, listed on your uh, sort of the handout here. But we want to make sure that you reserve uh, that time for that event. It's going to be Friday, October 25th and Saturday, October 26th. Some of the topics that are being addressed... Science and Christianity, evolution, Mormonism, and reclaiming the university. Uh, I find that last one to be particularly uh, interesting at this point in time as we have kids approaching college age, which is, I don't know how that happened, but it did. So uh, anyways, these are some of the topics. This is the date. And we definitely need some of you to help out, um, particularly with child care. Uh, we, uh, we want to make sure that those who want to come can, and we need some folks. Maybe this is, maybe this is not your thing, uh, but maybe child care could be. So uh, if you'd be willing to uh, sign up for that, that would be um, a huge help. And then secondly, I want to let you know that um, we have, uh, coming up in two weeks, on October 6th, we're going to take a benevolent offering, and this is something that we do periodically. It is both a right and a privilege uh, and a responsibility uh, for us as a church to help one other, another out in times of difficulty. And so uh, when there are needs that, are, uh, that come up, that rise up from within the church, they're brought to the deacons or the elders, and we kind of look at that and see what the best ways to help are, and it's a way to put some, some resource to need. And so we kind of um, do that for you. And uh, so we're going to take a benevolent offering to just sort of replenish that fund. And uh, that's in two weeks. So if you have a heart to contribute in that way, then I uh, would like you to uh, prepare yourself for that in two weeks. If you would, uh, bow with me. We're going to pray, and then we'll dive into our passage. Father, I, I'm really grateful this morning that um, I could be in this room with your people and hear your praise on their lips. Uh, to see uh, your covenant people worship you, uh, to hear brothers and sisters in Christ proclaim truths to you in worship, but also to one another in encouragement and edification was sweet. And so I'm really thankful for that. And even just the refrain of that last song that we sang, great are you, Lord. We don't take for granted that you are God are great. And we could spend time talking about the massive and the big ways um, that you are great. But this morning, Lord, I'm thinking about those very intimate ways um, that, that you show your greatness. That in your mind's eye, you saw me and created me and gave me life. You did put breath in my lungs and I borrow life from you, for you are the only one that has life in himself. But you have given us life, you've made us, you've loved us, you've loved us even though we were rebels, and you bought us back in Jesus. 
You gave of yourself to redeem rebel children. I'm grateful for these things. You are a great God. And so we turn to your word now, Lord, not uh, because we earn or merit our status with you by our diligence in it, but because we have the pure joy and wonderful opportunity of knowing our God who has revealed himself in his word, and we want to know you better, a great God. So help us, Lord, as we look to your word, help us to understand it and to love it and to be shaped and formed by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would open your Bibles uh, to Revelation 3, we're trucking right along in our series here. Seven letters to the seven churches. One uh, particularly frustrating uh, and helpless feeling in day-to-day life is being locked out. Locked out of your car, locked out of your house, especially when your phone is inside, right? You can't even call for help. You've got to rely on strangers in and around you to help rescue you. Um, A couple of years ago, I was getting a bunch of things out of my truck, and I had my key fob in my hand, and I locked the door and sort of shifted everything, and then I went and shut the door, and as I threw it closed, I inadvertently threw my keys into my car all in one motion. It was a small miracle of misfortune, you know. I'm sure I couldn't replicate that action if I tried, but I threw the keys in and the locked door closed all in one motion, and then they just landed right on the seat and just sat there taunting me, glistening in the sun. We're in here. You're out there, you know. Um, I heard a story a number of years ago about uh, a family here in Alaska who had a toddler uh, and this toddler got outside the house in winter time and closed a locked door behind them of the house. And that little guy was outside for a while and got frost, frostbite in a couple of places before parents had kind of figure out what had happened and how he got out there. Um, so I have just given mothers you one more thing to worry about there. So you're welcome for that. One of the frustrating things in life is feeling locked out, shut out, on the outside looking in, feeling helpless. Uh, On the flip side, when we get out of that situation and we get brought in and we regain rightful access and and admission, uh, it's thrilling. A couple years ago, we were at the tubing hill uh, on base and uh, we spent the day tubing at a birthday party, as you do, and, uh, or not the day, you know, an hour. An hour of tubing is plenty, right? It is for me. Uh, anyways, uh, we, it was time to go, and we kind of gathered up our things, and I, you know, started doing the check, and I, where I can't find my keys. And they just were gone. They were just gone. We even went out and looked inside some of the tubes, and they were just gone. And I had to call a friend to come on post, get me, take me to my house, get my other keys back on. You know, it was an ordeal, and I was not my family's favorite person that day. But the funny thing was, the next year we went to another party, and I thought, you know, by chance I'll just stick my head in the office and see if they have a lost and found. And I, you know, I said, any chance you guys have a stash of keys? They're like, oh yeah, we've got a bunch. And uh, they opened a drawer, and there's piles of keys in there. And right on top were my set of keys. They had them from the year prior. So I got my keys back. <laughs> Felt like a modern-day biblical parable. So. Our passage today reminds us that Christ alone has the authority to grant access to the coming kingdom of God. That he is king, and that he holds the keys to the kingdom. 
And as Christians, we may find ourselves at times feeling ostracized or like outsiders, locked out on the outside looking in. But Christ assures us that one day these roles will be reversed and we will truly be the insiders. We will be inside the kingdom of God, secure with our king. And so that's what we're going to find this morning. To Christians, this is a letter. The letter to the Philadelphians is a letter of encouragement and assurance. We're reminded of our security even while dealing with present difficulties. We're encouraged to persevere in light of our position in Christ. And we're even given a picture, a glimpse of sort of that coming kingdom of God uh, just by way of encouraging us. But this message also has implications for those who are not yet believers. Uh, It brings the person of Jesus front and center. It confronts the person who has not yet repented of sin and turned to Christ in saving faith. It brings them to the reminder that there is no other way by which men can be saved than but by the name of Jesus. And it offers a serious invitation to respond to that. So let's look at this letter this morning. This is chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is a lot of stuff packed into this passage, so we're going to do our best to to glean out the bigger things here. First of all, let's talk about the church of uh, Philadelphia or even the city of Philadelphia here. It is similar to the other cities that we've looked at. Uh, It it is an industrious city, uh, and it also is a polytheistic city like the other ones. In other words, Judaism, Christianity, paganism, imperial cult, all of these different movements are sort of intermingled in this one city. Uh, And in fact, this city was so filled with temples and festivals to pagan deities that it eventually earned the nickname Little Athens, Uh, one of its, uh, a couple of nicknames we'll look at this morning. Uh, It is distinct from the other cities that we see in Revelation in that it's smaller, it's more rural, it's more uh, out of the way, so to speak, although it is located right on a major trade crossroads, and so it had a very uh, strategic location that way. And so it really functioned as kind of a gateway city. And that was part of the way they understood uh, themselves. You might think about it in Alaskan terms. It's kind of like Healy is to Denali Park. You know, you got to go through. Almost nobody says, I'm going to Healy today, right? You go through Healy. 
And I'm not dissing Healy. It's a very nice place. You just typically don't aim at that as your destination. You tend to go through. At least I do. Uh, so they're kind of like that. They're a, a city in a strategic place, um, but smaller and a, and a little bit uh, less significant than the bigger uh, cities that we find in Revelation here. But it's interesting that this gateway identity that they have is something that Jesus seizes upon in his letter here. It's something that he uses to show uh, or to use kind of to describe his role as mankind's gateway to the kingdom of God. And so, once again, you see sort of these local and regional features being utilized by Jesus so that the messages are tailored and personal, and uh, we see that here. Uh, So let's kind of go through our normal pattern here. We're going to look at the Christology, sort of at the beginning of each of these letters. There's a section that that highlights um, some of the the nature and attributes of Christ, and and, uh, this one is no different in that. Christ here is seen as king and one who authorizes access to his kingdom. Now, where this letter sort of breaks with the pattern that we find in the others uh, is that the Christology in the other letters typically come from that first really glorious vision that we got of Christ in chapter 1 of Revelation. Some of those features like the sword of his mouth, uh, the seven lampstands, the seven stars, the seven spirits, and they sort of come from that particular vision. But in this letter, the descriptions and attributes of Christ don't come from that. They tend to come from other places in Scripture. Uh, And one of those would be in Isaiah in chapter 22. We're going to look at that in a second. And then even some of the self-references of Christ. So the Christology is there, but drawn from other places. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So let's look at some of these uh, features of the Christology. And I will tell you, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time actually on the front part of uh, the text in the Christology. I think there's some really fascinating things here. First of all, as holy and true, Jesus is identified and set up as one who is like no other. That's what we're meant to hear with this. I think oftentimes when we hear the word holy, we tend to think about something that is without sin, something without any impurity, and and that is right. That is a right way to think about holiness. Uh, We might think about uh, a diamond, right, with no inclusion, or gold without any impurities in it, Uh, metal without alloy, Uh, a family with that without cats or Chryslers, right? That's a, that's a family that's holy. I think so. Preach it. There we go. Uh, so that's definitely a part of the meaning of holy here. But holy also means something that's set apart, something that's different. It's not like the others. In fact, it's altogether other. It is holy other. And especially with sort of the pairing here of holy and true, we are meant to see the uniqueness of Jesus. He is not one of many possible deities. He is not one of many options. He is not one on a buffet line of many gods. He is the true and the living God. He is holy other, holy and true. God even refers to himself this way in the book of Hosea where he says, For I am God, not a man, 
the Holy One among you. Not like the other things. So holy, true, holy and true are ways of elevating the uniqueness of Christ and differentiating him above all of the other pseudo-deities of the region. And then secondly, we see here that he is holding the key of David. And this, by this, we are meant to see that Jesus grants access to the kingdom of God. Jesus does. He is the gatekeeper. Uh, we're also meant to see sort of the, the kingdom aspect here. That's where this kind of finds its way into the text. If you were wondering that, it's this reference to David. David was God's cho- chosen and royal leader on earth over his covenant people. And uh, through David, God established an enduring throne that one day Messiah would come to and sit upon and, uh, and rule forever. In fact, this is explicitly uh, promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. And so when Jesus is born in the book of Luke, in Luke 2, we see that he is the Messiah to sit on that throne and to rule forever and ever. It says in Luke 2:32, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So this reference here to David in the text introduces the the concept of the kingdom of God and Christ's right to grant or restrict access to it. He holds the key of David. We're meant to see his authority here of admission and his role as the gateway. Thirdly, Christ's opening and shutting actually in this particular instance reveal uh, a really hopeful future for the church. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now this is a point in time where I'm going to have to, you're going to have to Dig down and give me your best attention. You'll appreciate it if you do. This is a really interesting little deal here. This line comes right out of the book of Isaiah, out of chapter 22. And it's a little bit of an obscure backstory here. Uh, this, this, what is occurring here is we have King Hezekiah, who has an unfaithful servant, his chief of staff, named Shebna. Okay? And what we find is that Shebna gets removed from office and is replaced with the incoming chief of staff, Eliakim. And so there's a transition there. And of Eliakim, the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, in that day I will summon my servant Eliakim of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So Jesus grabs this line from this historic past and uses it here. In other words, this changing of the guard story from Israel's history is used by Jesus like case law, like precedent of what God is promising to his church. It's almost like he's saying, you know, Philadelphia as in sort of this case, you know, Shebna versus Eliakim, the unfaithful servant will be expelled and the faithful one will be brought in. And so the church in Philadelphia, and this is important to understand, 
they had been kicked out and expelled from the local synagogue, which is why Jesus is so critical of it here. They were on the outside looking in, feeling rejected, feeling vulnerable. And God is basically telling them, he is promising to them a reversal of fortune. Though right now you have been persecuted and pushed out, one day you will be admitted and no one is going to keep you out of my kingdom. But kind of the cool thing here is that Jesus reaches back into Israel's history and makes a promise based on something he has done before. And so overall, what we see in this Christology at the beginning of the text is, I mean, it sounds a lot like what Jesus says of himself in his earthly public ministry. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Christians, those are encouraging words if we've made that profession of faith. But if you're not yet a Christian, those are words that expose you. And they mean to. Jesus means to expose you so that you will respond. And I'm going to get to that more in a bit. It also reminds me of what Jesus said in John 10. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come, you might have life, and have it to the full. And so that's what we're really meant to gather from the Christology here. Jesus is asserting his authority to admit or exclude access to the coming kingdom of God. And his faithful followers, uh, the Philadelphians here, who at this particular moment had been expelled from the synagogue, are encouraged that they will be admitted into God's coming kingdom. Let's look at the commendation. What are they complimented for here? Well, Christ's followers are complimented, and the Philadelphians among them uh, complimented for being faithful. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. The uh, Philadelphian church here is kind of a classic underdog story. You guys love the underdog story? They are sort of like David slees, uh, slees. What's the word I'm looking for there? Slays Goliath? Or young Joseph, right? Sold into slavery only to become the second in command in Egypt. Uh, or like the small school that wins the championship. The lovable nerd who gets the girl. That's me, you know. Um, Philadelphia is what we might call the Rudy Rudiger of churches. You guys know that movie Rudy? Uh, I'll admit it's one of my favorites, if for no other reason, because there's one line in there that I love that I think summed up my entire athletic career as a high schooler. You're five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing without a speck of athletic ability. <laughs> I felt like I was being described in that one. That's Philadelphia here. They're a small rural church with little strength and relatively little impact. Nobody would look at this church and call it successful. The metrics aren't there to support it. But Jesus looks at this church and says, you've been faithful to me. He's not looking for six services. He's not looking for four campuses. He's not looking for massive metrics here. He's looking for people who follow him. And this church does it. This church here does it. 
So that even though they're a rural church with small numbers and small influence, weak, feeling exposed and vulnerable, kicked out of the local synagogue, beleaguered on earth, they stand faithfully with Christ. And Jesus sees it and compliments them for it. As the old line goes, one with Christ is a majority. One with Christ. Uh, I will tell you, um, this church really taps into what is my heart and my vision for this church. Uh, I, I never have in, in my aspirations for Bethel Church or for any church that it would be large. I, I, don't, I don't care if we're big or if we're small. I care if we're faithful. I, I really focus my energies on looking at the health of this church, not the size of this church. I have been really strongly impacted <clears throat> by A.W. Tozer, you know that, but one of his uh, statements where he says, concern yourselves with the depth of your ministry and let God concern himself with the breadth of it. And that is my heartbeat for this church, and I, I find support and encouragement here from this, this particular text. Also, I think there's an encouragement for us individually and personally in this, right? Um, we're encouraged that being faithful as individuals is no small thing. So let me just kind of cast around in your life a little bit. Um, maybe you're the only Christian or the only outspoken Christian in a class that regularly mocks Christians and the Christian faith and Jesus himself, and you're just kind of sick and tired of it. Maybe your employer wants you to cut some ethical corners, and you resist and you resist and resist, but your refusal, your long-term refusal, is putting your job in jeopardy. Maybe you have suffered some kind of personal setback in your life, or maybe not even just one, but a sequence of them, one upon the other. And the words of Job's wife comes to mind. Just curse God and die. If he's there and this is what he doles out, I don't know if I like him very much. And maybe those are just your raw feelings. Uh, Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and your world feels small. And when winter comes feels smaller and closes in on you. And you think about uh, your impact in the world for Christ and you have a hard time feeling like it's significant. Um, Anyone in these situations and others like them find encouragement from the words here, you have kept my word and not denied my name. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Faithfulness is no small thing, not in the eyes of the Lord. In the book of Zechariah, we find the great line, do not despise the day of small things. Small things are big things in the eyes of our Lord. Let's look at the complaint. See if you can find it here as I read. I will make those, verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Did you hear the complaint there? Well, there is one, but it's not levied against the Philadelphians, is it? It's levied against those who would reject Christ, in this case, a local Jewish synagogue. 
the Philadelphians are one of only two churches uh, for whom no complaint is given. The other one is Smyrna, if you remember that. And I will tell you, I would just oh, I would beg of you, in your devotional time this week, read these two letters again. Read them side by side. They're very interesting. These churches find themselves in very similar situations. Even this phrase, a synagogue of Satan, appears in both letters because of the persecution that each fellowship is feeling from that uh, sort of other, other faith movements in the area. What's fascinating, however, though, is the different result the different outcome. So here in this passage, we find that Christ's complaint is reserved for those who persecute his followers. That's where the complaint is aimed, not at the church, but at those who would oppose his church. Uh, this phrase, let's, let's run through a few of them real quick. Synagogue of Satan here. Again, this is the same phrase used of the synagogue in Smyrna who persecuted Christians there. And, and here's the thing. This phrase is used of this, of this Jewish community doing this, not because they're Jews. Remember, they're the chosen people of God, and yet they were chosen to recognize Messiah when he came. Failing to do that, they have sort of changed their status and position with God himself. In other words, rejection of Christ places one outside of security with God, even for God's chosen people. Or as Paul has said in Romans, not all Israel is Israel. And so here, Christians who have found themselves persecuted on every side from pagans, from the imperial cult, from antagonistic Jews, to these people, Jesus promises a reversal of fortune. They will be affirmed as what? The beloved of God. Though kicked out of the synagogue, they will in fact find themselves inside the kingdom as the one that God, the ones that God has loved. I think there's something else kind of cool about this. And that is, it's not so much that they will get bragging rights. This isn't like personal vindication. It's not so much that you were right. But what we find here is that uh, it, it will be God that is vindicated. It will be Christ himself. He is the one who has loved them. He has chosen them. Christ is vindicated. And then we see this kept from the hour of trial here. And that's a big phrase, uh, a lot of conversation and debate from scholars on this one. I do think it's a reference to the great tribulation at the end times. Uh, the language suggests that this trial will come upon the whole earth, so I, I think that's the only thing that it could mean. Um, there are some who say, uh, those particularly who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, look at this passage and say, see, it's here. This is where we see those who belong to Christ will be raptured prior to tribulation. Uh, others will say, well, the language here can be understood as not just kept from persecution, but kept through persecution. So as you can imagine, there's all kinds of discussions about this. In other words, any end time picture, those who hold these views uh, have to run through this passage. Uh, but I'm not going to develop it this morning that way uh, for lots of reasons. But uh, principally because I'm not going to develop a whole end time picture from one particular verse. Okay, uh, And I think that's, we're looking at these letters to see what the original churches would have heard from them, right? And what the original church, what the Philadelphians would have heard here is they would have been confronted with or presented with the reciprocity of Christ. In other words, you as a church keep yourself for him and he will keep you for himself. 
That is the assurance that they are meant to hear here. Um, But one of the things I do feel the need to draw out and to sort of uh, agitate you with a little bit, again, is notice the difference in outcome for these two churches. Smyrna, who was persecuted by a local Jewish synagogue, also called a synagogue of Satan, and the Philadelphians, persecuted in a very similar way. What's fascinating to me is this. One church is prepared for persecution, Smyrna. Get ready, you're going to be persecuted even to the point of death. They're prepared for it, where Philadelphia somehow is protected from it. In other words, I hope this bothers you just a little bit. If it doesn't, you're not thinking about the text. You're just letting it wash in front of your eyes. But what we find here is that for some God brings persecution to the faithful. And in other instances, he spares some from it. We might conclude there is no singular formula when it comes to suffering. At times, a righteous man is chosen for honor. At times, a righteous man is chosen for suffering. And God alone makes the decision for purposes known only to himself. Uh, One of the great lessons that I learned from Gary Brashears, one of my theology professors at Western Seminary, uh, is this, that God deals with different people at different times in different ways. And I find that to be very, very true. Uh, God is not like gravity, an impersonal force acting upon all exactly the same. Our God is a personal God. And the work of God in our relationship with him does not resolve into a neat and tidy formula. We are all actors in the same drama of God's redemptive story. But we have different roles. We have different roles. And the freedom and sovereignty of God. Some are chosen for suffering. And some are spared from it. And uh, I don't know, maybe the best words to say about that are what Augustine has said, St. Augustine. God being God offends human pride. Uh, What correction is given to them? Well, uh, there isn't one. (laughs) Since there's no complaint levied against them, there's no correction given to them. Rather, the correction is by implication given to all who reject Christ. As this local synagogue had, the reality is no one can reject Christ and be okay with God. No one can reject Christ and be okay with God. Jesus is not optional. And if you are not yet a Christian, I mean to present you with the invitation that we are given here, the strong and serious invitation. There is but one way into the kingdom of God, and that is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. God made this beautiful world. He made you in it. He made all of this for himself. And we are rebels. Each and every one of us is sinners, and we have strayed from the Lord, and we have brought sin into this world. God didn't make sin. We did. We contaminated this good shalom of God. And in his goodness, he has not just forgotten us or wiped us off the face of the earth, but he has made a plan, a way that we might escape the penalty of sin. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to be the receptacle and container for sin so that all of sin could be punished in him if we would look to him in repentance and faith. That is the great gospel that we have. That God spends of himself to redeem rebellious people back to himself. 
We have to take refuge for God's coming wrath in God's given son. And we cannot opt out of that and be okay with God. And maybe you're sitting here today and you thought, you know, I've heard that before. It's probably true. It's an inconvenient time for me. I don't know, whatever excuses you might have or whatever in your own mind feel like good reasons. I, I want to lovingly get in your face right now and say, you can know the joy of being secure with an almighty and holy God today. You can know that your sins are not going to be levied against you because they were levied against Christ on your behalf. You can today, through repentance and faith, enjoy that wonderful security of knowing you will spend eternity with a loving Father. And, uh, and when I close the service today, I'm going to ask if you would respond. So I'm going to give you time to think and to pray about that. Let's look at the final encouragement here. What is it? It's to persevere in light of future glory. To persevere. Look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This, this letter is loaded with encouragement. We've already seen some of the earthly encouragement, which is, I'm going to humble your enemies. Uh, and then secondly, I will keep you from trial and persecution here. And then now we are given these encouragements sort of from an eternal perspective. I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. I will write the name of God upon, or the name of God's city upon you. I will write my new name uh, upon you. And all of the language here speaks of permanence and security and significance. Uh, They're all in contrast to what the Philadelphians are feeling. Having been pushed out of the synagogue, they're feeling marginalized, vulnerable, insignificant, in jeopardy, fragile, failures, alienated. And yet Jesus is painting this picture of future and coming glory to give them a sense of security that they need to hear near, uh, at this particular point. I want to focus on one thing here, and that, this was interesting to me this week. What is this new name? Of Jesus here. God has given us his personal name in scriptures. It's Yahweh. Or translated to us, I am. I am that I am. Throughout scripture, we also see other names ascribed to God that sort of capture a way that he has dealt with people or, or with the world at large. Uh, and so other names are sort of given throughout the revelation of God. But it seems that there is a new name yet to be revealed And that, to me, reminds me that God is still at work. He is still redeeming and reclaiming this world for himself. Uh, These names that are ascribed to him throughout throughout all of the scriptures reveal attributes and aspects of his character. But there is something about his nature that is sort of yet to be revealed. In other words, when it's all said and done, and things are set to right, and he rules and reigns as he ought to, and sin is completely eradicated, there is some kind of a name that I suspect talks about completion, fulfillment, consummation. 
And the interesting thing is this, that he is going to write it upon us, we who are his very own. And so I have to sort of, with a smile on my face, uh, say this. Uh, those of you who are against tattoos, you guys had better get ready because you're going to get inked in heaven. We're going to get tatted up together. Marked by the name of our God who has redeemed us for himself. I don't know what that name is, but we'll be proud to wear it. I want to close, and I, as I said before, I want to give you an invitation to respond. If you don't have that security of knowing that you've turned to Christ in saving faith, um, please, I beg of you, do so this moment. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. If this prayer expresses the desire of your heart, give yourself to the Lord. God, you are a great God. You are kind and generous in that you have made all things and that you have even made me. I admit, I confess that I'm a sinner. I have turned away from you and embraced my sin and brought guilt upon myself and separated myself from you, the true and the holy God. But Father, as I hear the scripture, I recognize that you have provided a way of escape. In your mercy and your grace, you have provided a savior. You've given of yourself, your own son. So I receive Jesus' death on my behalf, my behalf. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. I understand in that, that my sin was placed upon him at the cross, killed buried and defeated. So I turn in repentance from my sin and I turn in faith to Jesus who resurrecting from the dead can resurrect me and bring me to the loving Father. Uh, Lord, your word is good. Your story is sweet. Uh, thank you for inviting us to be a part of it. We pray this with gratitude in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.